Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project. I'm Jay Harrington. With me, as always, is my co-host, Tom Nixon. Good afternoon, Tom. Good afternoon, Jay. Good to be back. Yeah, you know, it's it's October here in Michigan. And of course, as I look out my window, it's snowing outside. So um, that's par for the course, I guess. Yeah, well, it's feeling very fall for the Midwest. We fall back this Saturday or Sunday, depending on what, when your bedtime is. And it's, the weather's crappy and it's Halloween. And so here we go. I guess we're going to make the bad rush toward the uh, fourth quarter here. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. So for today's episode, uh, Tom, we have a, a great guest, uh, John Tronacosta, who is uh, a former colleague of mine way back. Um, but he, John is a partner in the Detroit office of Foley and Lardner, an uh, international firm. Uh, he's the founder and, and member of Foley's automotive industry team. Uh, John is, a, is an expert in all things automotive, particularly supply chain, contracting, and litigation. And he's also the author of a legal treatise entitled Michigan Contract Law. And I know, um, you know from having observed him, uh, he is an uh, outstanding person to talk to here on, on issues related to thought leadership. So, John, uh, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome to, the, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so John, I think for our listeners' benefit here today, um, what we really you know, want to dig into is the use uh, by a lawyer who has uh, built a, su- a successful practice for himself over the course of, of years and who has utilized um, the creation and distribution of content as a big part of building that practice and getting some uh, information and, and tips uh, from you as to your experience in that regard. So I, I kind of want to start a little bit broad and then we'll narrow in on some specific topics. But, um, you know, as I said, you've been a prolific uh, content creator over the course of your career. So maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about what role uh, content has played in the marketing and, and business development of your practice. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Thank you. Uh, it has played a significant role, and it started long ago. Uh, you were kind enough not to mention how long I've been practicing, but next year <laughs> will be 40 years in this in this wonderful profession. And uh, I did some things early on in my career, uh, Jay and Tom, that looking back, they worked out quite well, but it really was a bit of dumb luck because uh, I didn't know what it would mean to uh, do various things such as write articles, publish a book, serve on a committee. It just seemed as though that was uh, a good thing to do as you were seeking to establish yourself in a, in a new profession uh, in a town. But I think the as I look back on it now, I can see, uh, of course, I made a lot of mistakes. Everyone does. But some of the things that worked out quite well um, really focused on this whole area of what you're talking about, that is content creation and establishing yourself as a, as a thought leader. So what, what's the role? I, I really think there's two or three different roles. First, and this is really important, early in your career, it, it forces you to learn a particular area of law, develop a particular expertise such that you truly can represent yourself as being an expert in a particular area. If you're going to get up and speak to a uh, an audience of 100 people and maybe a lot of lawyers who know the area as well, you better have that expertise and you just really can't fake it. There's 
There's a lot of things you can't fake in life. You can't fake that. So number one, it, it does force you to truly uh, learn an area and develop an expertise. Number two, uh, I think it really is a way to announce your expertise to the marketplace, uh, and I would say in a polite way, in an appropriate way. Uh, you can't just stand up in front of people and say, I'm the leading expert in the following area, and you would be uh, uh, very uh, wise to hire me for that particular area. That's just not the way you do it. Um, by developing um, thought leadership or establishing thought leadership and, and this content creation, you really are announcing uh, to the world in, a, in, a, in, a, in the right way that uh, I am uh, an expert in a particular area. And um, number three, as you develop these articles and whatever else your content creation is, over time it gives you a, a very good reason to uh, send a copy of, a, of an article or a note or something else you've done to clients and client prospects. Uh, and it's a way of keeping your name in front of them in a way that hopefully doesn't aggravate them because they see something of value when they get an article uh, or something else from you. So for those, those are the, really the three big roles, I think, at least for me anyway, that uh, content creation has, has helped me in the things that I've done uh, in developing in this uh, particular area that I'm involved in. Yeah, and I think just to follow up on that, John, I, you know, the first point you made is really important, and it's one that's oftentimes overlooked, and which is that really the, the process of taking the time to create content really does allow you to uh, become a, a deeper, more insightful expert in a particular area of the law that you're creating content for, because you, you know, by necessarily by putting out uh, content for the marketplace, uh, then you, you're, you're putting your ideas front and center and you have to, you know, do the research, um, think through the issues, get really clear. I mean, I think the process of writing in particular is something that allows you to really gain clarity about what your ideas are. We, we talk about this as the thought leadership flywheel, which is, you know, when you're, you have a certain level of expertise in something, um, the process of creating content allows you to reach an audience um, that allows you to to develop, uh, you know, and gain trust from that audience. That leads to engagements, and then that deep that work you're doing, um, both in terms of the the client engagement and um, the content creation, reinforces that level of expertise. So I think that's very important. Um, and I agree. Yeah, yep, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's take a, a even an even further step back, because I think one of the things that's really interesting about you, John, and and unique in in terms of particularly in this era where content creation seems to really emphasize speed, you know, crank out a blog post, um, put something on social media. Um, but as an associate, you, you undertook a very big project um, that uh, involved, ultimately resulted in you becoming a, a published author um, it, with a book that I, I believe has been a big part of your success. So can you take us back to that period of time when, when you, uh, and hopefully I got the facts and the timeline right, but I believe you were an associate and which, which led you down the road to think that there was a book that needed to be written. And, and can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure, I can do that. Uh, the way that came about, I, I got involved as a, as a pretty young associate in the um, State Bar of Michigan business law section. And uh, after a short period of time being involved there, the then chairperson of the section uh, asked me if I would head up a committee, and it was the Uniform Commercial Code Committee. Well, I, I'm still a pretty new associate at that point, hadn't done a lot of work in that area, certainly wasn't in a position to call myself an expert 
in that area in any way, shape, or form. But I saw that as an opportunity to to get further involved in the business law section of the State Bar of Michigan. And so I accepted the, the assignment, and that necessarily had me uh, learning things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have focused on. So the whole UCC area, contract law area, uh, became something I was um, became very interested in, and and I think even early on developed uh, some expertise in that area. I also set a, a goal. Someone um, suggested to me, well, you might want to try and publish back then. And then back then, it wasn't like we have all these opportunities now. Uh, electronically, you actually had to publish something in a paper magazine that then, then was uh, mailed to people. But uh, I started writing articles. I said, you know what, I'm going to write one article a year. It, it didn't seem like an overly ambitious goal. And I really did stick to that. I had a discipline to that and started writing in this area of UCC and contract law. Well, what that led to, Jay, is uh, that really was the area I was practicing in. And there were a number of resources you had to uh, consult when you were working on an issue, and and again, I'll date myself, but you actually had to go to a library and pull books off the shelf and <laughs> and and then read things in paper. It was uh, the libraries were dusty and you would sneeze a lot, but that's how it was back then. But it occurred to me that it wouldn't it be great if there was one treatise on Michigan contract law that I could consult, and it, there really wasn't at the time. So I started looking into that, and uh, I said, you know, this might be an interesting uh, project. What I learned is that um, uh, that other states had such treatises. Uh, I was working with the uh, Institute of Continuing Legal Education in Ann Arbor, and they um, their counterpart in Wisconsin had a had a contract law book. And I took a look at that, and I said, you know, I, I think I can do this. And and I had to convince uh, Ickle, the publisher, that it was it was worthwhile, and, and they were able to look at the sales in Wisconsin and say, well, maybe there is something here. So I I I, I dove into that, and um, I did not write uh, everything in that book. I I sought out contributing um, authors and edited their pieces, and did write. Uh, a good chunk of it myself, but it it really was uh, uh, a fun project. I think I was a lot younger and had a lot more energy when I did it, but it, it's it's difficult. But when you get it done, it, it's really very rewarding. And I think as I look back on it, it really is kind of the ultimate validation of your expertise in a particular area. If you can if you can say, well, I wrote a book on that subject, that that pretty much establishes you as, as having an elevated um, measure of expertise, and it went from there. And so the book is, is out. It's on the second or third edition now. It's it's a nice paperback book now. It used to be a three-ring binder, which is a little awkward back then, but that's how things were done. Uh, but I, I, I look back on it and I say, uh, whether I knew it or not, it really ended up being one of the better things that I did to uh, establish myself as as a bit of a thought leader in in this particular area, and I'm I'm really really glad that I did it. Yeah, and it's probably easy, John, to look back and connect the dots now. But um, something you said earlier, you 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 probably in a self-deferential way said it was dumb luck, um, and I I have to quote uh, being an English major, Emily Dickinson, who said, "Luck is not chance; it's toil." And fortune's expensive smile is earned. And so it's amazing what we find in people who actually commit to doing the work and the toil, the fortune they find down the road. If you were to tell a younger self or a younger associate now, um, now that you're able to connect the dots, you know, how things have transpired for your career, what would you tell that person who is, 
maybe apprehensive to even committing to writing one article a year like you did. Well, let me start out by saying with that quote, you really enhanced my self-esteem because I really did think it was dumb luck back then. Um, but what I, what, I would, what I do tell associates is, uh, and it, it truly was some uh, dumb luck because I didn't know where that would take me. And it really was more, as I look back on it, um, I wanted to have this one source uh, of, of case law and, and thought on these areas that were coming up in my, in my cases. So the, the reason really was in the beginning more of a, um, this will help me be a better litigator of contract cases if I had this one source. So that was the focus. But in terms of, of, of telling um, associates or, or suggesting things to associates, you can't tell them things, you have to suggest things. I think what I would say, and I do say, is that um, you really have to uh, establish yourself in this marketplace that you're in. And that, that's true with any business you're in. You're an accountant, you're a teacher, whatever you may be. You're going to have to establish yourself and get recognized uh, in some way. And if you're in the private practice of law, you by definition are selling your services to a marketplace. And there's all kinds of uh, articles you can read and all kinds of books you can read about that. But at its core, at its core, I think it is um, convincing a buyer, a potential buyer of those services that, uh, A, you have an expertise and a skill set that is worthwhile to the person for the question they have. There will be um, a value proposition for that person if they hire you to do something for them. Now, how do you do that if you're practicing law and, and you're, you're out there chasing cases and you want to be known as, as someone who really knows how to handle, for example, supply chain cases? Well, it gets back to this, this content creation that, that Jay um, referenced in the very beginning here that um, you have to be able to credibly, credibly establish with a, a potential buyer of your services that you, you have the expertise, you have the background, and you have the the maturity uh, is a big part of it to assist them. And now, you know, smart people coming out of good law schools can look up the black letter law. Uh, we can usually get those answers for most questions, but the difficult ones are the ones where there's some measure of judgment that is involved in giving that advice to the client. And the client uh, wants to be convinced that you are in a position to be able to um, use a judgment when the answer isn't exactly black and white. And you get yourself in that position by having this history of, of content creation, thought leadership, speaking opportunities, uh, things of that sort that when someone looks at that, looks at your bio, looks at your CV or talks to you, says, I, I think this is the kind of person who I want to handle my case because it appears that they know the area quite well, and that they will be able to assist me when I'm making those judgments. So back to the original question, if I'm going to uh, be talking to my associates about why that's important, I try and tell them that, that as your career advances, maybe in your first three or four years, you are just looking up the black letter law and you're reporting to a senior associate or a partner on what, on what that answer is. But over time, if you're going to have success in this profession, I think it's true whether you're in private practice or in-house or in any other role, you're going to have to bring a measure of judgment and understanding to the situation. Draw on your past experiences to say, I I've seen this happen before and I've been in front of this judge before. I know how this typically plays out. Here's how I would advise you to go about 
uh, handling the circumstance. So it's all part of a, uh, an effort you, you need to undertake throughout the course of your career. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in five years. But in 10, 15 years, you need to be positioned such that you are seen as the go-to person for a particular problem, a particular area of the law, a particular topic. John, is when you're doing uh, writing now, and I know you do a lot of, um, I know you still publish quite a few articles and, and have over the course of your career, and oftentimes collaboratively with, with other attorneys at Foley, I know. Um, is that the where you're getting a lot of your ideas from? The types of like difficult, uh, interesting issues that arise in the context of your work? Is that is that kind of do you, do you see those things where maybe a, a, an issue pops up uh, a few times or uh, several clients ask the same question? Is, is that the sort of thing you're doing? Are you flagging those kinds of issues for future content creation? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Uh, you, you, um, I think one of the ways you can be successful is to talk about problems that a client should be anticipating even before they understand they might have to be dealing with that. Uh, as as an issue, and I can give you an example. Uh, I work a lot in the automotive supply chain, both in terms of litigating disputes in the supply chain, but also in terms of drafting the kind of contracts that that are used uh, in in the supply chain in automotive and, and more broadly in manufacturing. And as I'm sure both of you know, we've had some real issues with tariffs this this last year and. What we tried to do is uh, very early on when, when this was just being discussed as a possibility is take a look at how that might impact on the automotive and the manufacturing supply chain and try and um, work with clients to come up with a proactive strategy to deal with that as, as best as we can. Now, the, uh, the unfortunate thing about the whole tariff world is there's, there's, not, um, there's no silver bullets in terms of how you deal with some of the problems that are being created in manufacturing. Uh, because of the tariff situation and how that can change uh, every day. But that's that's a good example of where uh, you're dealing with something and then that should uh, be factored in to your overall understanding of this area you're practicing in and saying, well, how do we deal with that on a proactive basis? Uh, how do we anticipate these problems? Um, I do a lot of training work with procurement groups because over the years I've had a lot of cases and you trace the problem to a mistake uh, that someone made in the procurement uh, aspect of the of the company. And over time I said, gee, I'm seeing a lot of the same mistakes. I wonder if anyone just took some time to talk to these people. They'd understand why you really shouldn't do this or you should do this. And that really has evolved into a, a nice uh, part of my practice where I, I, I get up in front of procurement groups and, and, and talk about strategies and the problems I've seen reoccurring uh, time and time again. It's maybe some simple steps that, that people can take to um, try and uh, minimize uh, the risks of falling into one of those areas of pitfall, but also then to take it the next step. And this is really the key, I think. Lawyers are great about talking to clients, oh, you watch out for this problem, and this is, this is a real risk, and be careful not to go behind that door. And it's very important to do that, of course, because clients need to understand what their risk pitfalls are in a, in a particular transaction, for example. But I also then try and take it the next step and say, you know, if we talk about some of these things and we deal with some of these things in a proactive way, that'll actually enhance the value of your supply chain, for example. So we're always going to be focused on risk mitigation, risk management. Let's take the next step and come up with some strategies 
that will become a value add to you and will enhance the value of your supply chain. And it's much better to deliver that positive uh, message to a client and that positive suggestion to a client than to be the one that is always there when the lawsuit has started and everyone's uh, concerned and worried about that and, and you knock on the door and say, well, I'm here to help. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of proactive. I'm a big fan of saying, how do we keep ourselves from falling into these problems in the manufacturing supply chain, in addition to then dealing with them when they do when they do arise? Yeah, and that certainly that um, you know content fits into that uh, paradigm when you think about uh, being able to deliver proactive advice, you know, at scale uh, when you, you know you can't always necessarily get in front of people. Um, you can do that through your content by kind of identifying those issues and and sharing your your thoughts on that. Um, John, last question. And before we wrap up here, um, you know, one of the things that we often, uh, in the context of, of this podcast and, and our work uh, with lawyers and law firms is, is encouraging them not to think about uh, any particular piece of content um, as an isolated uh, event, but rather part of a larger strategy. Um, so I would imagine, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I, for example, in, in writing your book, I, I would imagine that that, that piece of content, uh, albeit a, a very large one that uh, took a long time to create, um, serves as a foundation for other forms of, of content creation, such as public speaking opportunities and, and other, um, you know, perhaps webinars or conferences that the firm has hosted. Um, is that... Is, is that is that been the case with you where really you know your book for example has led to other content creation and 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 publication strategies and opportunities as well well it really has it really has in ways that i i didn't even think of way back when and anticipate um but there there have been some nice what i would call ancillary uh benefits to having um written that book number one um it's it's a um, it's a nice thing to have in your briefcase when you're going to pitch a case in front of a general counsel of a big company. Uh, when the general counsel looks at you and says, "Well, you know, do you really know this area?" and you can just put a little sheepish you know look on your face and say, "Well, I, you know, I did write a book on it," and you put <laughs> in your briefcase and you hand them the book. Um, yeah. But um, secondly, uh, I, I actually I I think it's great that that most of the uh, the judges. Uh, in town here, uh, have a copy of that book, and uh, I, I, it just gives you a little more credibility in front of that judge. I don't think I ever get a ruling that I'm not entitled to. That's not it at all. However, uh, if I have a contract issue in a motion and I'm arguing my point, I'd like to think that the judge who knows that I was involved in writing the book on that topic uh, thinks I have some measure of credibility, and he or she should at least listen uh, a little carefully to what I'm saying. That's that's kind of a nice uh, position to to be in. It's also nice when you go back in chambers with your opposing counsel and you see the book on the judge's shelf behind his desk. That's always nice. I like that. Um, but uh, that that's been a, a spinoff of that. And and yes, it, it, of course, there's so many topics covered in a, in a in a treatise that you can look back at those and. And then have a situation come up where you say, you know what, I, this this thing we're seeing, the tariffs, um, whatever it may be, 
force majeure issues, hurricanes. Let's go back and, and look at the book and see what we what we wrote back there and take that and just you know pull that out and kind of uh, put a different type ribbon on it and, and market it as something that is, is quite timely to some particular situation that that is occurring. So yeah, it's had great um, spin-off application like that. And I'm, I'm actually working on uh, what I'm calling the last book, Jay, because it is going to be the last book. But the, the, the treatise that you reference is really for attorneys. And, and it's um, not something typically that, say, a, a procurement professional at a, at a company, a buyer, would, would have on his or her desk. But I want to write um, a follow-up to the treatise, which would be still on um, law of the automotive and manufacturing supply chain, but a practical, a more practical uh, approach that would be more of a handbook that someone who was a buyer at a company would have on his or her desk. And if they have a problem, they know to flip through the index and see if there's something um, discussed about that particular situation. But have it be more a practical uh, handbook as opposed to a, uh, a legal treatise with footnotes and cases everywhere. Uh, it probably it's, we're, we're well underway with it right now. It's a lot more fun to write than, than just a pure legal treatise because it really is focused on the practical, which is very important and maybe sums up a lot of what I think um, I want to be able to do and that, that I think young uh, attorneys should be doing. In the, at the end of the process, you have to be able to give your client advice that is well-grounded, well-researched, um, uses your judgment, et cetera, but it has to be practical. It has to be practical. Most GCs don't want 20-page uh, memos with hundreds of footnotes. That's not what they're after. They want practical advice, and so the ability to distill your book learning, your experiences, your teaching, your writing, everything that you've done, distill it into a practical bit of advice for the client. That's really what will set you apart from a whole lot of folks out there uh, in the marketplace. So that really, to me, is, is the ultimate takeaway. Take everything we're talking about and cause that to make you a practical um, uh, advisor uh, who clients seek out when they want answers to difficult questions. Yeah, no doubt, John. I think we, uh, we often times tell clients information when think about creating content information as a commodity but um what really matters is the practical implications of that information and so that i think that just gets to the point you were making um well good luck with the new book i think that's uh you know look forward to seeing that and uh and i'm sure that will be a uh, uh nice to have done because i know how challenging writing a book can be but um you've got one you know you've, you've got enough writing under your belt where i'm sure you guys will you guys will do a great job um so thank you so much this was i think very valuable uh and and informative information for our listeners so really thank you for your time today john and um, with that, we'll wrap up another episode and thank you all for listening and join us next week for another uh, episode of the Thought Leadership Project. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.